0: you like mice? Of course you don't.
1: Those are the words of Clarence Cook Little, the founder of the Jackson Laboratory, or JAX as it's also known. Jackson now breeds 12,000 strains of mice for various types of research and sells more than 3 million per year, including the C57 Black 6 and DBA lines that he developed.
0: Little's original interest in mice derives from his focus on cancer. Little is famous for leading the switch from studying cancer as a largely infectious disease to a genetic disease, with his greatest scientific contribution being called the Five Laws of Transplant Immunology.
1: Little also served as the president of the University of Maine and later the University of Michigan, but he's as well known for his infamous activities as his noble work.
0: Like many geneticists of his day, Little was a big advocate of eugenics, including serving a short stint as president of the American Eugenics Society. For decades, he also championed the perspective that smoking cigarettes did not cause cancer, at least not in most casual smokers.
1: Clarence Cook Little thus resembles many giants in biology's pasts, complex people who contributed a lot of positives to their field while also holding ideas that today we now know as unethical and unscientific.
0: But back to Little's mice and the founding of Jax.
1: Little argued in a 1935 Scientific American article that mice would be ideal for lab research, especially genetics, because most people considered them pests. Why not breed hordes of mice and do what you want with them if the majority of people don't like them in the first place?
0: And so exploded the use of mice in biomedical research. What were once just nuisances
1: and maybe occasional reservoirs of zoonotic
0: pathogens, became one of the most powerful tools ever developed in biology. So should we see them as pests?
1: This question is core to the new book of our guest today, Bethany Brookshire, who's also the host of the podcast Science for the People. Bethany's book entitled Pests, How Humans Create Animal Villains tells an engaging story about the history of our interactions with a subset of particular species.
0: I live in Norway, so it's pretty rare for me to encounter a cane toad or a Burmese python. But even in parts of the world where these species have occurred for millennia, these organisms either present no problem to native species, or no more problem than other relatively large predatory species with plenty of natural enemies to keep their populations in check.
1: But for Floridians like me, these two species alone are the reasons I can't let my little dog off his leash when we hike in the Everglades. Okay, Loki is probably too big to be eaten by a python. But he's not too big, and he's very much too dumb to avoid eating a cane toad, and especially the lethal, toxin-filled parotid glands on the back of its head.
0: The theme of Bethany's book, pests, depends on context. One person's creepy crawly is another person's inspiration. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Cameron Gallenbohr.
1: And this is Big Biology. Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on Big Biology today. Uh, We're really excited to talk to you as a fellow podcaster and a fellow fan of pests. Uh, but before we get into that book of the same name, um, tell us about how you got into this topic. You were a host of the Science for the People podcast. Did some experience from that podcast inspire you to write the book?
2: Uh, sadly, no. Um, it was an experience actually from my work as a journalist. Um, I. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually in the book, the, the story that got me inspired. I was reporting on a study in 2016 um, from Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, Uh, showing that mice, it was a study of ancient mouse teeth, showing that mice mus musculus had been associated with humans since the earliest days of permanent architecture, permanent or semi-permanent architecture. And I just became so fascinated by the idea that we've had house mice since we had houses. I just, I loved it. And that was before we had agriculture. We had permanent housing. We were settled pretty permanently before we started farming. And I just love that so much that these animals had immediately seen what we were setting up and been like, hmm, that looks good. And and I just love that.
1: So that isn't necessarily mouse as pest, right? That's mouse as cohabitor. I mean, maybe, maybe somebody people could read that as pest, and it's definitely viewable as pest, and you write about them that way. But how did you make that experience? How did you take that as a turn towards writing a book on other things, the pest connotation for Matt and pests for mouse and pests generally?
2: Yeah, so I I became fascinated by that story. And then I started looking at the examples of other animals who had just been living with us, kind of in association with us, not domestics, but commensals, right? And I became really interested in all of these animals that were kind of making it with us And I especially became interested in the fact that most of the time when animals are making it with us, we hate them. (laughs) We hate their success (laughs) so much. And I love that for us. Um, So I just became really fascinated as to these animals are literally successful when we often kill everything around us. And yet we hate them. And I became really interested in asking why. Why we hate the animals that we do
0: well—that that might be a good uh, segue into um, telling us a little bit about Kevin. So you <laughs> you start off the book. Um, so if, I guess for the listeners, the 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 official title of the book is "Pests: How Humans Create Animal Villains," and um, you start off talking about Kevin, or maybe um, more accurately, effing Kevin. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about? Um, who Kevin was and uh, how Kevin sort of um, inspired you uh, as part of the writing the book?
2: Uh, yeah, so I, I was going to ask if we can cuss on this podcast. Um, <laughs> we, yes. so, we sometimes call him Freaking Kevin, Fucking Kevin, F and Kevin. Currently, when we're outdoors, we mostly call him just Kevin because there's a three-year-old who lives next door. <laughs> um, so got to keep it G-rated. Um, but uh, yeah, so Kevin persists. Uh, there are many Kevins in my yard. Kevin is an eastern gray squirrel, Sciurus carolinensis. Um, and I will have you know that currently uh, Kevin is setting up family life again for the spring, and there's a bunch of very stupid teen squirrels wandering around my backyard making stupid teen squirrel mistakes. Um, But yes, Kevin is one of the reasons (laughs) that my garden has failed for the past five or six years. Um, And it's because (laughs) he steals all of my tomatoes. Uh, He comes when the tomatoes are green and plump and pretty. And he picks one and he takes a big bite. And then he recalls that he doesn't like tomatoes. (laughs) And he leaves it on the porch for me with a little bite mark in it. Just, just so I know. And then the next day he does it again. And again, <laughs> every day. Um, yes. And uh, I have done many things. I now have a full gardener's crop cage um, to protect my plants, which also ended up being surrounded by chicken wire and lined with bricks um, to <laughs> stop Kevin. Um, yeah. And to be clear, there's more than one Kevin. Kevin is kind of the collective name for all of the squirrels in my yard. There are about, I don't know, six or seven Kevins. I'm absolutely sure that at least one of them is female. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think it's a good bet.
2: Kevin is a gender-neutral name. <laughs>
1: Kevin is a great example and the, the mice you talked about just a minute ago. I think what, what sets your book apart from other things on, on pests, other other book-type treatments on pests, is that you're really trying to to focus on the human perspective, that you know, pest in the form of conflict with people. And maybe sometimes the conflicts we create. I want to quote something that that you wrote to, to capture that. As Western societies wall themselves off from the natural world, its denizens fall into two camps, the ones we rarely see and the ones we see too much. The rare animals get appreciation. They're beautiful, natural, and usually far away. The common ones, on the other hand, are so common that in the best case, our eyes pass right over them. In the worst case, they intrude on our consciousness and our lives, like Kevin. That was my ad. They become pests. So why do we feel that some of these PCs are pests and others not? I mean, where does this kind of dichotomization, these ideas about pests come from?
2: Oh, there's so many answers to that question. Um,
1: (laughs) (laughs) There's a book on that, I think, right?
2: There's a whole book on that topic. Um, Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I explored that question through five different themes in the book. So I, I explored kind of like why we might look at an animal and say, "Ugh, that's a pest. I hate it. Um, and so one of the themes is like fear and disgust. Sometimes we look at animals and we're disgusted by them or we fear them. And we're much more likely to call those animals a pest. Um, another example is um, niche, niche, <laughs> niche. Take your pick. I, I always wonder. Um, I, I've been in groups of people where it's team niche, niche, and one where it's team niche, I'm going to compromise Team Niche.
1: That's good. All right, good.
2: (laughs) Um, So anyway, there are animals that come into niches that we create in our ecosystems, because of course, we are, as humans, create ecosystems where we live. Um, And these animals come into the niches that we create. And sometimes we deliberately create niches that allow those animals to thrive. Um so that was like the second theme. Uh, the third theme was um, belief. We often see animals through the lens of our own beliefs about them. And so a good an- a- example of that is cats. We believe certain things about cats that live with us. Uh, the other example that I use is elephants. Um, and then the fourth uh, theme was power. We often are very quick to judge and by judge, I mean kill animals that threaten our sense of control over our environments. And the last theme is habitat um, and habitat destruction and habitat construction. A lot of times we basically come into a habitat, we build a Walmart and a parking lot, and then we get surprised when the animals stay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're like, you weren't, you weren't supposed to be here. <laughs> and, and when the animals stay anyway, we start to call them pests. So I looked at all of those kind of different angles and each has something to say about why we might call an animal a pest, but there's no kind of one definition, I would say.
0: Yeah, well, I, I'd like to talk about cats. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Everybody wants to talk about cats.
0: <laughs> so um, as a cat owner and also somebody who, um, you know, studies birds are, I, uh, I love my cat, Uh it has never lived outside. It's always been a, an indoor cat because of our concern about the uh, ecological impacts that cats have on wildlife around them. I I thought it was really interesting how you sort of presented cats as like an example of um, a sort of species that is either beloved uh, by some individuals or some cultures, and then also maybe vilified or, you know, at least perceived negatively um by by others, and so um, I guess one thing that I wasn't really that I kind of wanted to get your opinion on was how much of this is is just like an educational um, problem in terms of you know those of us who are familiar with the with the literature and the research on how many birds are killed each year by cats or lizards or other uh, kinds of wildlife, um, we're very aware of this. And yet, some people are completely unaware of, of you know they they don't perceive their cats in that way. They may not be familiar with the equal you know with the scientific literature. Is it really a, a problem of um, education? Like you talk about, for example, in Australia, there are active campaigns to eradicate feral cats, and that really wouldn't go over well in the United States, I don't think. Um, so. Is it education or is there something more? Is there, is there another kind of deeper explanation at play? Or is it a combination of the two? I don't know.
2: Um, well, I would say also fellow cat lover. So I feel you. I have <laughs> okay. two cats. Uh, mine were actually both former ferals. I, um, I yanked them in from outdoors <laughs> and they are living very happily in my house. Um, I think that's a really interesting and complex question you know i think we as scientists we as communicators are often pretty quick to leap to like the deficit model and say like oh if only people knew about how much trouble these animals cause they would absolutely change what they think and the reality is that you know and i know the deficit model of science education does not work <laughs> we know this <laughs> um and it really i think comes down to what people value and what they've been taught to value. Right. I know numerous people, I actually live very close to one who loves birds, feeds birds, has outdoor cats that hang out under the bird feeders all the time and bring birds inside, knows full well, is a scientist, and knows full well what cats do. So I think, you know, it has a great deal to do with kind of what people value. A lot of people. Honestly, you're going to ask them to choose between the cat that hangs out in their lap, and a bird they probably can't identify. You know, um, I, I get I get why they might not make the same choice you would. Um, and but it also has to do with kind of what the culture has taught you to value, right? So um, you talked about Australia. Another really good example of this is New Zealand. Um, so New Zealand is currently on its predator free 2050 uh, campaign where they're basically trying to rid the country of every single predator that can eat all of the things that grew up in New Zealand and are therefore very dumb. Um and I think it's really interesting because the predator-free New Zealand original list includes stoats and um like opossums and rats, like two different kinds of rats. It does not include cats. Even though cats are one of the most popular pets in New Zealand. I think they actually might be the most popular pet. Um, People in New Zealand love cats. They own cats. They firmly believe that it is in their cat's best interest to be allowed to roam. They feel that, you know, it is part of a cat being a cat and living its best cat life. Even um, there are surveys of veterinarians in New Zealand who say, yeah, you have to let the cat out. Like, otherwise the cat's going to suffer psychologically. Um, And at the same time, they do acknowledge the problems posed by feral cats. There was actually a lot of news coming through right now because there was a proposition for a yearly cat hunt for school children in New Zealand, like literally go out, kill cats. Um, what a field trip that is. (laughs) Oh, in New Zealand, that is very common. You can, uh, it is a thing in New Zealand for school children to make rat traps, lethal ones. So why not cats? Um, and so this was a a thing and then the backlash just got huge. (laughs) Now it is not a thing. Um, it's, it's a real combination of kind of knowing the harms and deliberate choices we make about what we believe to be more deserving of our attention. And that's not to say that one decision is better than another, right? Like I I can't say that.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Bethany, I mean, there's a paper a 2016 paper by Philip Nyehouse that that takes a prominent place in the first part of your book. And it, and it seems to sort of approach this issue from the place that I think Cam and I our brains first go as ecologists, you know, we sort of think about pests first and foremost that way. There's no question that the concept of pest has all the other dimensions, the social ones and such, as we're, as we're talking about. But even within the ecological sense, one of his dimensions of thinking about pests is impact. Is there any kind of consensus of pests as impact? I mean, are there clear categories? or there? How clear is it in simply the ecological space of what a pest is and where things get a little more gray?
2: You know, it's absolutely not clear at all. <laughs> like It's all subjective judgment. Um, and the way I kind of approached it, um, and this gets at one of the distinctions that Philip Nyhas makes in his review, which, I mean, if you're into that kind of scientific literature, highly recommend, super good, excellent reading, um, is the, the fact that you have to differentiate between a predator and a pest. Both of these animals have negative impacts, right? But the severity of those impacts kind of differs. So he actually describes it in terms of severity. I think of it in terms of a predator harms us. A pest harms our stuff. It harms the things we value. So the most classic definition of this is a crop pest, right? um an insect or an animal that, like a vertebrate that's getting into your crops and eating the food that you value this can also be coyotes eating your livestock wolves eating your livestock a coyote attacking your pet these are all things that are attacking not you but the things that you value and this is where for example we can come back to cats right that has to do with whether or not you value birds as your stuff i'm using air quotes here your stuff right if you value birds as your stuff then cats are pests preying on your stuff um and so i think the ideas that bring us close to animals are often again they come back to values and one of my favorite examples of this is actually pigeons right? There are people in this world still who love pigeons. They compete them. There are fancy pigeons. They have like big old feathers that like come out between their toes and stuff and like (laughs) these big ruffs. And like, there are some pigeons that when you throw them, they tumble through the air. (laughs) (laughs) I love Oh my goodness. Pigeon throwing YouTube. (laughs) Highly recommend. And you know, that they really love these birds. I met someone who would literally snuggle pigeons. And it was because she had a use for them, right? She was close with them emotionally. It's amazing how you can quickly distance yourself when you no longer have a use for an animal, right? It's real cold, but it's real true. Um, You know, and we used to really value pigeons for what they did for us. They were great messengers. They were great food. They still are great food. Um, they produced a lot of fertilizer, that sort of thing. We don't need that anymore. We have cell phones and chicken <laughs> and chemical fertilizer. And it was amazing to watch. There's actually this wonderful research that I highlight in the book um, from Colin Gerald Mack, who I think is still at NYU, that tracked mentions of pigeons in the New York Times over about a hundred year period. And during that period, they go from noble, innocent, beautiful, to rats with wings. (laughs) And that hundred year period coincides with the loss of our use of the pigeon. And just as we use them less, all of a sudden we don't care. They're like the outdated cell phone of animals.
1: The flip phone. Wow. That's vivid.
2: (laughs) Isn't that sad? It's awful, right? Yeah. Like you can laugh about a flip phone, but then you're like, that's a bird. Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Well, I do find them, I do find them charming, but I'm a weirdo as biologists go in terms of being enamored about pests for, for, for different reasons. But you, you had to make so many choices when you were writing this book though, because there are lots and lots of different pests out there and you, one chose to focus on vertebrate pests, and I, I would like to hear about why why you did that. But even among the vertebrates, you know, there were only, I guess you didn't want to write a 3,000, 40,000 page book, but but how did you pick the species that you did? There, there are pigeons in there, there's mice, raccoons, deer, we're going to talk about some other ones, but how did you choose the ones that you did?
2: Um, yeah, so there's definitely a list, like, as long as my arm, and I totally would write a 3,000 page book, but nobody wants to read that. Except me, <laughs> uh, I ended up actually choosing the animals that I did specifically because of the themes that I talked about earlier. I was looking for scientific research that really highlighted those themes and could speak to those themes. Um, and I would say many, many animals that we call pests would fit all of those themes. When you're writing what we like to call narrative journalism, which is what this book technically is, it sounds very highfalutin, you have to kind of combine the story that you're telling with the scientific research or the journalistic reporting that you have. And the reality is the reporting must always come first. Truth is more important than story. Um, This causes a lot of writers a lot of pain, but it is very true. And so a lot of the animals that I picked, I picked because they had the most research around them. So for example, I am minorly obsessed with feral pigs. Like And maybe not, maybe not minorly. This is not low key. I am high key obsessed with feral pigs. Um, They are so fascinating. Um, But there's very little research on the ecology, the sociology, the psychology surrounding our treatment of feral pigs. There just, there just isn't. Um, I I actually talked to several um, wildlife biologists about this and they'd be like, oh yeah, nobody studies that. (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, I, it, it's it, there wasn't a body of research that I could really draw from.
1: Wow, that's surprising. I mean, living in Florida where they're so pervasive, it's really surprising to hear that there isn't more out there besides, you know, the knee-jerk responses get rid of them. And I, I think everybody is on board with that. But exactly what they do, and I, I don't know, I would have expected there'd be a, a big literature out there.
2: No, no, I think that's why, right? It's the same reason that actually we know very little about the urban ecology of rats. Mm-hmm. We're only interested in how to kill them right and the answer is helicopters with guns when it yeah. comes to pigs mm-hmm. helicopters
1: <laughs> um, with guns for rats that's uh
2: <laughs> helicopters with guns for rats no they'd have um, maybe drones like those little tiny
1: yeah yeah with little tiny lasers and things yeah <laughs>
2: um no uh so yeah but as for why vertebrates only um it was mostly because i really want this book to make people think and think about why we treat animals the way we do, and maybe call into question some of our knee-jerk responses. And the reality is, you can't do that for cockroaches. You can't. Mm. Nobody, like, yeah. it, it's it's a hard sell <laughs> to be like, cockroaches are so fascinating, you guys. They're very important ecologically. You can't, people are just, they're, they're not gonna have a moment of sympathy for the roach. Right. <laughs>
0: I just have to, I want to kind of just quickly go back to um, pigeons because I um, I wanted to just communicate a, a story that I used to tell when I taught ornithology um, and we talked about navigation and um, one of the most famous pigeons was this pigeon uh, Cher Ami uh, that, um, you know, saved troops during World War 1 and you know it's just the 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 classic sort of war movie scene where uh soldiers are trapped behind enemy lines and you know they're getting shot at and they they have their passenger pigeon that they put the little note in its leg and it it flies through the bullets <laughs> and makes it to the other side you know after it's been blinded and, and
2: poor sheremy he did he he was shot to heck yeah he came through with like one leg it was it was rough. Yeah,
0: exactly. And and so, you know, that's that's a heroic <laughs> that's maybe the most heroic pigeon that we have, uh, you know, historically. <laughs> and now, as you said, you know, it, it pigeons are sort of looked looked down upon. But, you know, even when you read The Origin of Species, um, Darwin talks extensively about about pigeons and and pigeon breeding was so, such a popular, um, uh, you know, thing for everybody to do at the time. And so um, but but that also kind of makes me think that a lot of these um, attitudes that we have about about our animals that we uh, interact with is also kind of fluid. Um, and so it's it's not always just that, you know, our perceptions stay grounded, you know, and, and don't change. They, they do evolve. And, and as as cultures change and environments change, it seems like our attitudes do as well.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's a really important point. And it's one that I kind of try to highlight through the book is kind of how people can change their views over time. Pigeons are a great example of this, of people who used to love pigeons. My favorite story from that is that Darwin's editor, when he submitted on The Origin of Species, was like, this evolution stuff is fine, but I mean, have you considered just writing like a pigeon book? (laughs) Because people are really into pigeons right now, so... (laughs) <laughs> I love that so much.
1: <laughs> so pigeons are pretty amazing, but let's put a challenge to you, Bethany. Can you convince listeners about how amazing rats are? If you're able to do that, I think you've really done a task. Tell us about the Karni Mada temple and how, you know, different different cultures have very different perspectives on one of the you know, the first thing that I think comes to everybody's mind when you say pest is rat. So, what what's the Karni Mata Temple?
2: Especially if you're living in New York City right now, man. Yeah, <laughs> everybody's everybody's obsessed. Um, yeah. So, I sadly Karni Mata is one of the places I was not able to go for reporting because of COVID. But the Karni Mata Temple, um, it's about eight hours northwest of New Delhi, I believe, um, and uh, it is home to around twenty five thousand black rats, and like. When I say around, I mean it's more that you can than you can count. So it's a lot. <laughs> uh, they say twenty five thousand, um, and these are ratus ratus, and uh, these rats are sacred. They are they are holy symbols um, because they are believed to be reincarnated people, and so the rats are worshipped. They are well treated. They receive sacrifices. Um, they used to allow people to like bring in outside food to feed the rats. Um, But now the rats receive a special diet because the people were bringing in too much junk food and the rats were not doing great. (laughs)
1: Yeah, and there's even a rat kitchen, right? There's a specialty
2: rat kitchen, yes. Um, And what I found really fascinating about that is how contextual it was because I was speaking to, I got to speak to some people who worshipped at the temple. And um, there was one guy, he goes every day, he worships at this temple. His mother actually renamed him Carney after he survived a childhood. Um, illness. So he's named in honor of the goddess who is honored at that temple. Um, And he goes pretty much every day. Um, He allows the rats to crawl on him and like all this kind of stuff. And then I said, well, you know, how do you feel about the rats in your house? And he was like, oh, I hate rats. They're they're awful. Because the rats in the temple are not rats. They're something else. They're symbols of reincarnated humans. And I think that context is really... Important to kind of how we view those animals. Um, but as for like loving rats, I know people who have pet rats. Um, I myself have worked with rats. They are if if you're gonna choose to work with rats or mice behaviorally, choose rats because <laughs> <laughs> they uh, I mean the the reality is mice don't like you. They don't. Yeah. they're never gonna like you. I appreciate their honesty, but you're never gonna make a friend in a mouse. a rat a rat wants to snuggle, it wants to play, it wants to hang out. They are incredibly smart. They are incredibly charming. And, you know, so there are people, there are fancy rat shows (laughs) that you can do Um, that, you know, pet rats, all this kind of stuff. And I think a lot of people don't appreciate rats because of the context in which they encounter them, right? If you see a rat coming out of a sewer covered in God knows what, or emerging out of a trash can or jump scaring you in the night (laughs) these are not things that are conducive to liking sure and
1: that whole (laughs) what was it called black death thing i mean there are other things connected to to rats that give them a bad name yeah pestis leptospirosis you know minor minor stuff yeah
2: i I find that very funny because of course people are like oh rats black death and i'm like oh chickens bird flu (laughs) right we're still eating chicken (laughs)
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, can so maybe that's a a good way of contrasting um the situation in New Zealand with the with the Maori's and the uh the kiore, I I guess or the kiore. Kiore, yeah. the Pacific rat. Can you tell us a little bit about how what that relationship is between humans and rats?
2: Um yeah, so this is the Pacific rat, so it's Rattus exulans as opposed to Rattus rattus or Rattus norvegicus. Um so yeah, I was really lucky Throughout this book, um, to be able to meet and learn from a lot of indigenous people um, from around the world, and and mostly this was via Zoom or phone or WhatsApp, <laughs> um, things like that. Um, but they were incredibly generous uh, with their time and with me being really ignorant about things. Um, but yes, I got to speak to several members um, of the Maori about how they see kiore. So when the Maori arrived in New Zealand. They actually brought Kiore with them on purpose. And this is partially because rats are food to the Maori. And when I say food, I do not mean like snacks. They are fancy occasion, nice food um, for celebrations. Um, they, they are not of themselves of ritual significance, but they're like signals of a, you know, special occasion. Um, and so the Maori used to really encourage these cure, um in New Zealand. They would, um, for example, leave half of their garden kind of unweeded, and that was for the kiore, right? Um, they would plant specific things to encourage the cure. Um, There were areas where certain tribes, um, iwi, had control of that area for the hunting of kiore in particular season. Um, They're especially good. Apparently there's one particular kind of fruit. And if the kiore eat a lot of this fruit, they become especially succulent. And so that was, you know, you had to have permission to hunt them at specific times and in specific places. And now, of course, the kiore are actually on the list for Predator Free 2050. And uh, interestingly, one of the things I appreciate is that um, the government of New Zealand which is the Maori name for that is Aotearoa, have collaborated with the Maori to say like, hey, you know, these rats are causing problems. Um, And the Maori are like, yeah, yeah, we see the impact on biodiversity. Uh, And so they have negotiated to have a couple of islands that are kind of the Kiore Islands, um, where the Kiore will be kind of farmed and not farmed, but encouraged and allowed to flourish um, while they are eradicated from other places. I found that um, that partnership kind of really interesting and also kind of a great way to compromise um, between kind of the biodiversity worries surrounding some of these animals and the belief systems surrounding them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's the history of the Curie? I mean, that how did it originally get to New Zealand? It's That's a long swim for most places.
2: Oh, no, the Maori brought it.
1: Okay, okay.
2: Yeah, it was on there. Um, they, they brought actually a bunch of things uh, with them. They brought, <laughs> you call these... Uh, archaeologists call these um, cultural packages or food packages, <laughs> which to me sounds like a little present, <laughs> um, but they were, they were not present. Um, so they brought, uh, let's see, uh, chickens. Uh, I believe they brought dogs. I believe they brought pigs. Um, they brought kiore, sweet potato, um, and a couple of other plants um, that were kind of part of their agricultural package um, as they were spreading, and and it's not just to New Zealand. Um, they ended up bringing them all the way to places like Hawaii. Um, so yeah, this was this was part of that kind of eastern expansion across the Pacific.
0: Um, but can you, in terms of the the sort of ecological impact, my understanding is the kiori are are smaller than um ratus ratus, um, the bigger black rat, and so there's I think interesting sort of interactions ecological interactions between the the bigger the bigger sort of you know commonly perceived pest rat versus the kiori bigger batter rats yeah <laughs> and then yeah it, it it sounds like a kind of a interesting um, and complex sort of ecological kind of interaction can you can you talk a little bit more about how they interact with other rats and and the in the environment
2: yeah so i didn't um this is not my specialty, uh, to be clear. Um, I highly recommend researchers in New Zealand if you want to <laughs> talk about this more. Um, but certainly uh, the Kiore, uh were the dominant rat on the island until the arrival of Europeans, um, at which point they brought Rattus rattus. They, wa- they brought Rattus norvegicus. Um, and both of those, they're bigger, they're badder. And um, Rattus exulans, the curee was kind of exiled to the outer islands, um, where those rats do not co-occur. Uh, the, there is acknowledgement though, that, the Kiore do have ecological impacts on their own, but those have since the arrival of European colonization, um, just totally been outweighed by, by the, the tide of other rats.
1: Tide of rats, boy, another vivid example. <laughs> so, um, there's so much we could talk about with rats, but you have many different chapters in your books and I want to make sure we, we hit a couple of the other pests, Next, I want to do maybe the most surprising pest. I know it was surprising to one of my graduate students yesterday. We were talking about speaking, and I said to her, "Bethany wrote a chapter on elephants as pests," and her eyes got really wide and said, w- "Wait, what? Elephants as pests?" So great example of you know cultural context strongly influencing um, whether something is a pest. So, so tell us about elephants as pests, and maybe say a little thing, a little bit about the really creative use of of. Um, apiculture, you know, putting bees around property and and how that has some influence on, on management of elephant pests.
2: Well I will only do that if in return you can tell me your elephant story because <laughs> I have been told that you have one. Um yeah it's not I'm, the most
1: exciting story in the world, but okay. I want to know though. yeah, um,
2: yeah. yeah so it, it I, I found elephants really fascinating because um, we in the West and by West I mean you know develops subject to Um, kind of Judeo-Christian worldviews, the global north, etc. We have this view of elephants as beautiful and wise um, and, you know, super smart and cute and like all this kind of stuff. And this is all true. I have been to Kenya. I have met these elephants and they are adorable. They are amazing. They are inspiring. But African elephants uh, kill about 200 people a year. They cause millions of dollars in crop damage. Asian elephants kill upwards of 800 people a year um, and cause millions of dollars in crop damages. Um, I think we in the West often discount those losses because we are not the ones experiencing them. You know, an elephant is big. <laughs> when an <laughs> elephant comes to eat your corn, it is not going to eat one corn. (laughs) It is going to eat all of your corn and it's going to do it in one night. (laughs) That's your entire crop for the season. Um, And often people are killed or injured uh, when they try to protect their crops from these elephants. And, you know, it's reasonable for these elephants to want to have these this corn, it's right there. corn is the snickers of elephant food. like why would you not? <laughs> and it's like literally growing right next to the national park in which they live. and so it' it, it was a really fascinating human wildlife conflict thing to explore. Um, but yes, there are lots of efforts within Kenya in particular to kind of protect elephants and people to prevent this conflict and one of my favorites is the use of bees <laughs> because uh plenty the elder used to say that elephants were afraid of mice and that's like a—I I think Disney perpetuated that myth <laughs> it's not true
1: oh yeah that was in dumbo that was definitely yeah, in dumbo it
2: is not true elephants <laughs> can't even really see mice like they're it's not it's hard to see um but uh bees elephants do not like bees especially african honeybees And this is fair because African honeybees are SRS business. Oh, my goodness. And so there's projects. Uh, The project that I looked at was um, the one developed by Save the Elephants, which is the Elephants and Bees project. And what they do is they work with farmers to erect beehive fences around their crops. And you create these nice beehives, you like put some like lemongrass in there, create like a like a really nice feng shui sort of space, you know, add a little cage around it so the honey badgers can't get in, and you hope that like the bees come and live in your hive. Um, and if they do, the hive is connected to a wire which runs around the property. And when an elephant comes, it shakes the wire, the bees come out, <laughs> and the elephants are like... Bye. And you would think that like elephants wouldn't have to worry about bees because elephants have skin that's like two centimeters thick. (laughs) But it's not true because elephants also have eyes and the tips of their trunks and the areas around their mouths and the bees. Mm, Can you imagine a bee up your trunk? My God. Yes, that wouldn't be good. Especially an
1: Africanized bee of all
2: things. I'm gone. I'm gone. (laughs) Um, So this is really interesting because um, now, of course, they're trying other things like you can't guarantee that the bees are going to move into the hives. These are not the European honeybee that we literally truck around by the billions in the United States. Um, These are wild bees. And so if you can't get bees to move into your hives, Um, a couple of the uh, beehive officers I was talking to were working with white noise machines Hmm. that kind of sound like bees. Oh, interesting. Um, They were trying to drive away elephants with quadcopter drones, which kind of sound like bees. Hmm. (laughs) And when in doubt, make it sound like a bee. Um, I found this really fascinating. Um, But it's this kind of really interesting uh, kind of ongoing arms race between the elephants and the people because elephants very quickly figure out whether the beehives are inhabited, whether that's actually a drone or a white noise machine. (laughs) And if it is, they're like, well, no, I'm not fooled anymore. I'm going to (laughs) keep, I'm I'm... no, you can't fool me with this. Um, And so they're constantly kind of one upping each other. Um, My personal favorite device is anything involving chili peppers. Basically, if animals in general learn to love spicy food, we are hosed like that the humans are done (laughs) (laughs) okay like mm -mm. if rats learn to love spicy stuff oh we're done we're done uh so elephants don't love spicy things so you can plant chili peppers um you can use chili balls which are chili peppers kind of put into a ball with like charcoal and when you throw it at the elephant it bursts um and they get coated in chili pepper they do not like that um or my personal favorite is this one guy was like, yeah, the quadcopter drone isn't working on its own. So we're going to attach a can of chili spray to it. Wow. And then we'll just like hit a remote and it'll spray the chili spray. <laughs> I have not found out if they've gotten that to work yet.
1: <laughs> um, let's talk about another dark pest issue. Um, the Four Pests campaign in China. And what that meant to the Great Famine. So this was the brilliant, one of the many brilliant ideas of uh, Mao Zedong um, killing sparrows because he thought, based on some of his advisors, that they just ate too much grain. What happened? It led to, you know, big insect outbreaks and all sorts of calamity, um, not least of which maybe was cannibalism. Um, Tell us that story and, and tell us about the attempted eradication of the Eurasian tree sparrow in China.
2: Yeah. And like, to be clear, doing the research for this chapter was intense Um, and not just because of the aftermath that was the Great Famine. Um, It was intense also because this is not stuff that is taught in China. Um, It is not discussed. You do not talk to journalists about this. (laughs) Um, I ended up finding someone and talking to him through two interpreters And like a couple of proxies and some encrypted messaging systems. Wow. (laughs) That is not his real name. (laughs) Like, but yeah, so in the late 1960s, 1950s and 1960s, there were several large kind of public sweeping campaigns um, that were kind of designed to move China into kind of this bright communist future. And uh, some of them were very successful. So, for example, there were mass vaccination campaigns. Um, They worked super well. Uh, There were mass sanitation campaigns. Those worked pretty well. (laughs) Um, There were also mass roadworks. Those didn't work so well. Um, And then there were mass pest eradication campaigns. And so the first four pests were rats and mice, which were like one pest, um, mosquitoes, flies, and sparrows. Um, And what I found really fascinating was I actually ended up getting translations. I have several wonderful translators um, who did this work, which, again, is dangerous. (laughs) Even translating this work can be dangerous. Um, They translated a bunch of scientific papers that kind of did historical papers, but also scientific papers that covered kind of the proceedings of the Communist Party talking about these sparrows and basically saying like, the ornithologists were basically pressured into doing a bunch of experiments and declaring that sparrows were really bad. They didn't really seem to do it willingly. Like they, they kind of did. <laughs> As in, they said, "Oh yes, yes, uh, sparrows definitely eat grain. We can, we will open their stomachs and we will see that sparrows are full of grain and they can eat this much grain in this much time. And therefore, you know, if you extrapolate that out, you can absolutely, you know." Um, but most of the scientists. When they were consulted for their real opinions, were like, "Yeah, that it's not really going to make much of a difference. And they also eat bugs, so they might be useful. Um, but the Communist Party did not care. <laughs> um, and there were these huge mass eradication campaigns, um, some of which are detailed in this amazing book called "A Soviet Scientist in Red China." And it was this guy who was a Soviet scientist. He was a chemist. Um and he was assigned to go to China. And then he escaped. He escaped. Soviet Russia, he went to Canada for a scientific conference and never came back. And he wrote his memoirs. Um, and in them, he he talks about, you know, you'd wake up in the morning and women would be running around waving bedsheets on poles and screaming at the tops of their lungs and banging pots and and everybody in the city would be doing this. And the whole goal was to get the sparrows to fly around until they died of exhaustion. <laughs>
1: Right. Because there was some study that estimated how long they had to fly before they just fall out as a guy dead. Right.
2: Four hours. Four yes. hours,
1: which <laughs> seems excessive, but OK. <laughs>
2: and uh and they also would send out like uh, the middle schools would send out their rifle teams to shoot these sparrows. Um And I think part of it was because this is something that, as with many of the more successful mass campaigns, it was something that you could see. Right. You could pile up the bodies. It looked really impressive. Um, unfortunately, yeah, sparrows eat bugs. And later there were documented more insect problems. Um, the sparrows themselves are probably not responsible on their own for the crop failures that followed. Um, but they didn't help. And they think that the Great Famine later killed between fifteen and fifty-five million people. So if
0: we like zoom out now, um, you know, at the beginning you you talked about how um how Basically, humans, either by uh, changing and creating habitat or destroying habitat, kind of create the conditions for some of these species that become very common and, and we sort of end up having conflicts with and referring to as pests um, come about. But I'm curious, like in the process of uh, writing the book, did you did you kind of come away with any take home messages or commonalities about why certain species become like human commensals or, um, or not, and why some are more successful ecologically uh, relative to others? Are there are, were there any common themes that came through or is it more sort of idiosyncratic, like house sparrows versus other, other types of birds?
2: Uh, certainly in terms of ecology, I can say it never hurts to be a generalist. Uh, <laughs> animals that are not picky eaters <laughs> do real good. <laughs> that's just in general. And that's across taxa. So, you know, birds that can eat grain, but can eat bugs, but can eat, you know, Twinkies <laughs> will tend to <laughs> do a bit better, um, than birds that are like, Oh, I only eat, you know, aged sunflower seeds that have been aged for primarily six to eight months like yeah they don't do so good um the same is true of mammals uh so you see a lot of mammals like black bears uh doing very well in north america raccoons coyotes all of these we think of coyotes as predators but let me tell you a coyote and a fruit tree close they are close (laughs) (laughs) Um, so i would say you know generalists uh and also animals that can tolerate being near humans right you need to tolerate us you need to tolerate our noise you need to tolerate our pollution you need to tolerate uh the fact that we put concrete everywhere <laughs> our habitats are not welcoming um so i i really came away with this honestly great admiration for the animals that make it near us we do not make it easy and when you see i'm i'm just like we have no choice but to stand <laughs> You know, like that bear has gone and made a den under your porch and I love it. I'm here for it. Yeah, yeah.
1: Maybe maybe not feeding him Twinkies every afternoon. That that might be pushing the envelope a bit too far, but yeah.
2: Don't do that. The, the the number the other thing that I really came away from uh from this reporting with was stop feeding the animals. Stop take down your bird feeder, stop feeding the raccoons. If you want your Disney princess moments go buy a bird.
1: Or or go to to Disney. (laughs) Or go to Disney. Yeah.
2: But we force ourselves on into these interactions because of what we expect about these animals. And we expect them to respond to the way we behave, to read our behavior, to see us as, you know, this nice, friendly person. And then we're shocked. When that coyote that somebody has been feeding for years comes up and bites a child on the hand. Yeah. Cause that's where the food comes from.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't, <laughs> you know, shouldn't a... really be a surprise.
2: <laughs> no, no, it really shouldn't. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so we've got um, a couple more questions. And I think the, the one that I, I most want to ask in our limited time is let's say when you write the new version of this book, 20 years into the future, Will there be new species that you will need to write about because we've so urbanized so much of the world? I mean, assuming that that continues to happen, which I I think in in some ways that that's reasonable, that the climate is very different. Are there incipient pests that you expect to be writing about?
2: 100%, yes. Um, Some of the animals that I covered near the end of the book are ones that I kind of think of as incipient pests. They're animals that aren't really pests yet. They're still distant enough to be considered wildlife but uh black bears are one of them they're still distant enough to most people to be like oh my god i saw a bear yeah mm. <laughs> yeah. the people of Asheville, north carolina would like a word <laughs> about all the bears you've been seeing um so yeah i i think certainly there are species uh the sulfur crested cockatoo in australia love those guys <laughs> they are everywhere though um, oh my goodness they they're are everywhere. uh there are um oh, the rosy rosy parakeets i think that's the species um they're little green dudes uh they're really big in uh, california um so i mean no matter what as long as we continue traveling around the world changing our environments changing the climate we are going to make it easier for some species to make it we're going to make it harder for some species to make it where they are. Um, one of the good examples of this is the Burmese python in the Everglades, right? Which is yeah. chomping its way through the Everglades right now. And we hate them. There, There is a python hunt and you can go every year and you can hunt as many as you can get. Um, but the Burmese python is actually endangered in Southeast Asia <laughs> because of habitat loss. And because we hunt it to put make pretty bags out of its skin. And it's it's really fascinating to me how we can almost kill off an animal in one place and it can thrive in another and we're hating it, even though it's kind of making it like it's threatened and yet we hate it. <laughs> it's, it's just fascinating to me. But yes, I think there will always be, always be new species.
0: So um, if, you, if you were, let's say, put in charge of uh, an education campaign to come up with like maybe I don't know a TV show or a radio show or something that you know would be distributed widely how would you how would you structure such a program to to kind of put these types of human wildlife conflicts um, on people's radar because it strikes me that there's also there is as as I think you mentioned as humans uh, or especially living in cities have become more disconnected from nature, they've kind of lost some of the intuition. I think about, you know, the, the tourists every year that walk up to bison and Yellowstone and, and don't see them as large, dangerous mammals and, you know, end up getting hurt. How would you communicate these kinds of ideas? I mean, obviously you've written the book, um, but if you had to like package it in a, <laughs> in a way that, uh maybe uh for a children's program um do you have ideas on how you how that could how that could be done
2: i think one of the things that i really would want to emphasize is as i mentioned i was able to learn from a lot of indigenous uh people around the world um and uh in particular indigenous uh people from north america um so lots of uh first nations in canada native americans in um the us and one of the things I appreciated was how they perceive the world. So we view ourselves as separate from the ecosystem, right? We are not part of the ecosystem. Wilderness is something we go to, to visit. And I really appreciated speaking to a lot of these indigenous people because they were like, well, no, no, nature's right here. It's it's right here. It's in your house. <laughs> um, and... One of my favorite quotes about this um, was from Joseph Marshall III, um, who is a member of the the Rosebud Sioux and who wrote a book on this called On Behalf of the Wolf and the First Peoples. Um, And basically, he was talking about wolves. And he said, that's not to say we were always pleased with one another, but we always respected the other's right to be. Right. You don't go around trapping and killing every coyote that you see. Right, the coyote has has a place. It has a thing that it's supposed to do. That's not necessarily that you want it right next to you, (laughs) but that you need to respect your place and their place, and neither one of you is in charge. And I think that's such an important framing, and I think it could really help us have less human wildlife conflict if we stopped seeing these animals as interlopers into our space. Right, but Kevin, F and Kevin, my squirrel, cannot read the like deed to my property. <laughs> he does not care <laughs> that those tomatoes are mine and I paid for them. <laughs> like, he he doesn't care. Um, and so I need to make accommodations as to how I live with him. And so I think that that's kind of the underlying approach that I would want to take is this idea that. So often when we see pests, we want to start a fight. We want to start a war. We want a rat czar (laughs) who's going to poison all the rats out of New York City. And not only will that never work, um, (laughs) it also isn't a useful way to actually live in these environments successfully.
1: Well, Bethany, we we really enjoyed the book. We really enjoyed the conversation. Um, We know that you've got a heart out in just a couple of minutes. So we'd like to give you the chance to say anything that we haven't prompted you to say, is there any part of the book that you wanted to make sure to talk about? You want to tell us about your next book? Do you want to tell us about anything else with effing Kevin? <laughs> what else? What did we leave out?
2: Um, no, I would say you've covered a lot of it. I think we come by our idea that we dominate over environments um, very much through our kind of Judeo-Christian worldview. Um, so I do talk about that a lot in the book. Um if I had to plug anything, uh, go on YouTube and watch the free 1988 documentary "Cane Toad: and Unnatural History." That thing is genius, <laughs> genius. <laughs> it's only 45
1: minutes yeah, long. I'm sorry we didn't have time. I'm sorry we didn't have time to talk cane toads. That's one of my favorites too. I, I saw that a while ago. That, that oh, is highly recommended. I deserves
2: agree. an Oscar. <laughs> so good. The
1: the potatoes popping on the road is especially charming. <laughs>
2: so good. My favorite. <laughs>
1: Cool. Well, thank you so much. It's great to talk to you and good luck with the book.
0: Yeah.
2: Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode. If you like what you hear, let us know via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you don't, we'd love to know that too. All feedback is good
0: feedback. Thanks to Steve Lane, who manages the website, and Ruth Demery for producing this episode.
1: Thanks also to interns Dana De La Cruz and Kyle Smith for helping produce the episode. Keating Shimeri produces the fantastic cover art.
0: Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support.
1: Music on the episode is from
2: to Bear and Tieran Costello.